Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, this is Victor Hansen for the Victor Davis Hansen podcast. Sammy Wink and Jack Fowler aren't with me today, but we have a special guest, uh, Ido Netanyahu, the well-known Israeli author, playwright, and columnist, also doing radio commentary. He's a radiologist by training, but uh, he's a polymath, and he's a public intellectual, both in the United States, but specifically in his native-born Israel. And of course, that name may sound familiar to you. He's the brother of the war hero and now deceased Yonatan Yoni Netanyahu and the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the son of the famous and probably greatest historian of the Spanish Inquisition and the Jewish diaspora that resulted from it, Benazan Netanyahu. We'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. I'd like to introduce everybody. Ido, how are you? You're speaking to me from where now? Speaking from my home in a village called Kineret, which is by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we moved here about two years ago and are very happy. We Thank love you. Jerusalem. Not, not we didn't like Jerusalem, but this is, uh, this is even better. Yes, so, and it, it's a beautiful home. My wife and I, Jennifer, had uh, we were, dinner. Were very, you were very hospitable, you and your wife, Daphne. Uh, let me just ask, I think everybody want, uh, might want to know, so you were by training a radiologist, you, you, your degree from Hebrew University, but you were at Mount Sinai in New York. How long did you practice radiology in the United States? Uh, well, in the United States, I did uh, my residency training and fellowship, and then I moved back to Israel. And then, uh, because the reason I went into radiology is actually because I wanted to give myself a lot of free time in order to write, sort of towards the end of medical school. This actually happened after my brother, Jonathan, uh, was killed. Yes. Uh, rescued to Entebbe. I took a year off, and uh, I thought, well, should I continue medicine or not? And then I started writing, and I, I liked doing it. I thought it was uh, stimulating. And so then when I decided on uh, what profession in medicine to uh, to work in, I decided on radiology because I felt that would give me the most free time in order to pursue my writing. And that worked and out pretty well, you thought? That's indeed what happened. So uh, ever since then, I've been working uh, part-time after my training and uh, quite often in America, going back and forth. And now... Uh, I do some radiology, but I do it from home by teleradiology. And I devote most of my time to writing. I recently have become a columnist. I mean, uh, I guess uh, um, I felt that I had to pitch in, in uh, various, uh, <laughs> various issues that were uh, uh, involving the country and uh, actually refrained for many years from appearing in public. But uh, when this whole sham of... Uh, 
litigation against the uh, accusations against PB about supposed uh, bribery and nonsense like that. Everything is now unraveling what? in the court. <laughs> I felt that I had to uh, start appearing and uh, discussing it and talking about it and attacking the uh, prosecution for going after him as an attempt to, uh, of course, unseat him. That's what was being Let's, uh, just after this brief introduction, let, let's go right to one topic, then maybe we can get back to the these uh, this persecution of Bibi that didn't work, obviously. Uh, but here in the United States, all of these uh, protests that there's a radical change in the Supreme Court, that the Netanyahu government is trying to rein in. But for us who have a written constitution, and you're more like the British, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't have a written we constitution, don't. is the Supreme Court's authority vis-a-vis the tripart system of government, the executive, is it fluid and is it expanded out of control? And is this kind of a return to normality that uh, yep. BB's trying to do? If, exactly. explain, I don't think we understand it here in the United I States. No, because it's not presented in a proper way. That's uh, You have uh, the press that's yeah, it presented is. in an erroneous way. No, what's of course, the Supreme Court for the last, uh, I would say, 25 years, almost 30 years, has stepped, took on powers for itself that were not delegated by any law of parliament, of the Israeli Knesset. They just unilaterally decided to take on more and more and more power to un, un, an unheard of degree in any Western democracy. It just does not exist. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. I mean, for instance, first of all, they canceled the rule of standing. That is, there are no limitations to who can petition the court, anybody. You don't have to be an involved side to petition the court against a government decision. Uh, what happened is, of course, that a plethora of NGOs uh, appeared, all on the left, and started petitioning the Supreme Court about every government decision that they did not like, uh, and also every law that they did not mm. like. And so the, the Supreme Court is involved, for most of its uh, uh, time, is involved in handling these petitions, which often attacks behind the scenes, of course. Well, it, uh, let me ask you, because American is going to say, well, wait, wait, wait. Don't you have fe- federal district courts and then federal appellate courts, no. and then it has to work no. its way up? You can't go right to the Supreme Court directly, can it, you? No. On this matter, you go straight to the Supreme Court. Wow. It's the first and only. Yes, it's unbelievable. unbelievable. How many How many Supreme Court justices are there? Is that a static number over the years, or is that yeah, fluid yeah, as well? Yeah, it's been 15, and that's not enough in order to handle the number of cases that are being... But what's happened is that the criminal cases, other cases, are just put on the uh, backstand because they're, they're involving themselves in politics. Now, what what this means when they're petitioning is that the court, since everything can be petitioned to the Supreme Court, then a, the Supreme Court is being petitioned about politics. It's involving itself in, in Israeli politics from A to Z on everything. And uh, so the Supreme Court then decides, for instance, recently, it decided, I mean, this is unheard of in any democracy. And it decided that one of the ministers that Bibi appointed as minister in his government, uh, it was petitioned to cancel that appointment. This was done in order to try to, uh, for somehow the, the court, the coalition to dissolve. And so that was petitioned. And the court said, yes, he was appointed as minister legally. That's true. But we think this is an unreasonable decision to appoint him as minister, and therefore uh, you have to make him resign. And this there's is a Knesset. Does the Knesset doesn't in the United States the comparable the Knesset would have that power, right? But it doesn't anymore yeah, of course, in Israel. Of course, no. They take away power both from the government and the Knesset. They uh, they decide on everything and anything. Who appoints the Who appoints the justices? Oh, that's the problem. They appointed themselves. How? What do you mean they appoint themselves? How's that possible? <laughs> it's possible because this is how it's been. It was a self perpetuating club, and it became more and more leftist with time. And they appoint people of similar ilk. Right now, the rules were changed a little bit a few years ago, but they still have the judges have veto power. Okay. The Are you trying to tell me that 15 judges sit down and when one retires or dies, the other 15 select them? Yes. No, well, not the other 15. There's a committee of selection. 
A judicial committee? Who appoints appoints a judicial committee? Well, it's three judges of the Supreme Court. The three are appointed by the head of the Supreme Court. And then there are two members of the Israeli bar who always go with the judges. But you have no input from the Knesset or the or the prime minister? Yes, there is one from the coalition and one from the opposition. And there's one from appointed by the government. That's all. That's, why, and, that's incredible. And in order to appoint a Supreme Court judge, uh, you need a 70 percent. So that means they have full veto power over any new Supreme Court justice. And indeed, they have a majority for any all the other justices. Their simple majority will do. And so they, in effect, have a majority. And so they appoint all the judges in Israel, of all courts in Israel. So you can understand, first of all, the Supreme Court has become a self-perpetuating club of people on the left. Some of them are on the radical left. Here and there, you have, of course, a token right-winger, but you know it's, it's meaningless almost. And so... Uh, and by the way, all the uh, uh, deliveries, deliberations of the committee are uh, behind closed doors. It's not open to the public. What is your checks and balance? So in the United States, if you're the judicial is one of the three branches of government. So the way our system works, the president nominates, but that has to be approved by it used to be two thirds of the Senate. Mm-hmm. And then we had this. Uh, nuclear option where you only need 50 uh, right. votes in the Senate. But then and to, and then the Supreme Court can get back at the executive by ruling an executive order uh, unconstitutional. And then the Supreme Court tries the president if he's impeached successfully and then he can mm-hmm. they conduct the trial. And then the legislative branch, then if the Supreme Court rules something is unconstitutional, they can override that and pass another law. Not that it won't be declared again, but they they can then, in reaction to that, pass a law on their own. Or they can issue uh, writs that we've never done it, but they can impeach a Supreme Court justice as just as they do a president and then try him in the Senate. So there's all these checks and balances. Do you have any of those? No, no. There's no they, check they on their power? On- no, there is. That's uh, the, the pendulum is tilted totally towards the. In effect, the Supreme Court, uh, also through the Attorney General, which who is beholden to them, uh, basically are the uh, ultimate rulers of the country. Doesn't the uh, Attorney General work for the power, the political power, and nope, in nope. Government? The Attorney General is also appointed by committee. There's uh, no. There are many things. BB doesn't have a Department no. of Justice. He uh, no. He does not control the department. No, the Department of Justice is one thing. The Attorney General is a separate body, and he's appointed by committee. He's beholden to the uh, Supreme Court, and he's beholden. And to so, the what, what was? And why so, don't you just give us an example? So, what is when he was confronted with this, and given that they hounded him in a sort of a, I don't know, an Orwellian matter, manner to go after him. And so he's now in power. His his team is in power, and what are the measures they're doing to try to bring normalcy back to? Or well, they're trying, to, they're trying to bring back, yeah, they're trying to bring back uh, the Israeli judicial system into something similar to what was in existence for the first uh, 40 years of the country, uh, more than 40 years uh, in the, of the country, until the uh, uh, mid-90s, uh, so that uh, before the court, you know, took upon itself various powers, including the lack of limitation to standing, including the... Uh, the, uh, the the fact that they can also declare laws illegal. That is, they can cancel laws that they are... Uh, now, to you, it might sound reasonable, but it's not because Israel has no constitution. And so at one point in time in the mid-90s, this was all done through a very uh, activist Supreme Court justice called Aaron Barak. Uh, he took activism to the uh, uh, nth degree. And uh, to such a manner that's unheard of in any court of law, in any Supreme Court, in any country. And he declared, he decided unilaterally that we have something called basic laws. They're called basic laws for various reasons. It doesn't matter. And he decided that this one of the basic laws allows him, even though it doesn't say it, allows him to declare a law uh, illegal. That is, I don't accept this law. And they've been using that in order to uh, unilaterally, even though there's no such ruling by the member of the, by parliament, to decide whatever laws are uh, not, uh, should be canceled. Now, they've canceled maybe 21 laws, but more than that, 
they uh, also decided unilaterally that the, the government has to abide by the decisions of the Attorney General. And so <laughs> the Attorney General who is beholden to them, uh, when the government or the parliament wants to pass a certain law, the Attorney General gives an opinion. This is not behind closed doors. He does it openly in the press. says, well, this, I, I don't think this law will pass the Supreme Court. And so there are many, many laws that are not passed because the Attorney General holds this kind but, of power. But, but when they declare a law invalid or they nullify a law, what canon of jurisprudence do they do? We, In our case, we look at the Constitution and then a liberal judge says, you know, this is what the Constitution really could have sort of might have meant. And a conservative judge says, no, this is what it actually says. But they, at least they agree on one small item, and that is they have a a written constitution as a form of reference. So what do the yeah. judges use as the criterion use, to reject the law? The criteria. They use the criterion as a basic law. Now, what's happening recently is that they also declared that they can also invalidate the basic laws. Okay, They haven't done it yet, but they're threatening to do it, especially regarding the reform, the judicial reform that hopefully will pass. Are these so, laws defined okay. by jurisprudence, or are they were they were they passed by the Knesset and signed by the yeah, prime minister? Passed by the Knesset in a simple majority. Uh, the main law, the basic law that they're using to uh, invalidate the uh, laws, was passed by uh, only uh, not even the majority of the because it wasn't it was a midnight session, and it was passed I think thirty two to twenty two. There was not even a, a majority of the parliament members present at that time. It was a plurality. And that's is this is what the but then they say, uh, well, our our right derives from the basic laws. But now they say that they can also unilaterally declare the basic laws invalid. Let, let me ask you at this point. So all of this judicial runaway power or overreach. What do you think? prompts it, what part of Bibi's legislation? Is it foreign policy? Is it opening up as he did before in 2006 and deregulating the economy? Is it cultural? Is it all of it? What are they, What when they see that and they want to expand their powers into new territories and they're doing it against him, what, what areas are they trying to focus on? Or is it just a scattershot, everything he does? Uh, no, not everything it does. If they agree with something that they might do in an economy, they don't bother with it. They they actually can say, "Well, we're not touching this." You know, when somebody petitions, uh, but they do uh, deliberate on whatever they want to deliberate, and it can do with you know what. Uh, when we develop the gas fields, we try to develop the gas fields uh, on the Mediterranean, which is a boon to our yes. economy, and uh, our oil prices are very low compared to Europe. I mean, had been had we not developed these uh, oil fields, we we would have been in dire straits. Well, you know, there were, the left was against developing oil for various reasons. I won't go into. Yeah. Uh, and the Supreme Court then decided that the government, uh, the deal that they struck with one of the oil companies to develop one of the major fields, uh, while it's legal. It's unreasonable. They also use the criterion of unreasonableness, which also is, has nothing to do with law, uh, because the government wanted to make a 20-year deal, and they said, no, you can't. It's unreasonable that the government will agree to 20 years. Well, what oil company would agree to less time? Okay, they're putting in billions and billions of dollars to develop this uh, oil field. And uh, somehow, Bibi and the Minister of Energy convinced the oil company uh, to continue, even though it was only a matter of much less than years. I forget what it was that they allowed. <laughs> I mean, they, they would, they would, they they could have uh, prevented, almost tried, uh, almost succeeded in preventing because they were sure that the fields would not be developed if they strike down the twenty-year uh, agreement. So they almost prevented that. They they go into everything. I mean, when well, they even did, did, when they, they ever had, if they had a situation where the Supreme Court was so egregious and said this law is invalid or this area in this law we're not you cannot do that that there was a pushback and if there is a pushback against a ruling who's the ultimate arbiter Does well that's a big, that's the constitutional question that might come into play once they pass this new reform of the legislation until now 
the government and the and parliament decided not to just to obey the rulings of the Supreme Court in order not to reach this constitutional crisis. Uh, because uh, uh, don't forget that Israel, the Israeli government, is composed of a coalition. Yes. And so it's a shaky coalition. Until now. Now it's the only time there's a firm coalition that is willing to, willing to tackle, for the first time, the uh, power of the Supreme Court. You know, there, people felt that, okay, well, time after time and again, we elect a right-wing government, but we get left-wing uh, left-wing agenda yeah because it's same here we call it the deep it's different but we call it the deep state that no matter what we do there's a permanent bureaucracy that has uh, judicial executive and legislative power all in one person yep well here it's compounded because here it's there's also the deep state of course and uh, in point of fact you have the uh, bb going into court and being <clears throat> accused of of criminality uh, that's pure deep state yes that. <laughs> luckily luckily what is the politics breakdown so when we here in the united states and if anybody's listening and many of our thousands of listeners don't read the new york times or the washington post so we don't get we don't get a an accurate mm-hmm. view once in a while real clear politics i think had an essay uh, mm-hmm. peter berkowitz had a so-so essay on it but what is how does it break down politically? Is it just simply left right there, or is there? And when you see these protests, these are leftists that feel they lost the election, they don't have power, and yet and they don't want to give up their final chance to have unelected power because their agenda doesn't appeal to the majority of the people, and this is the one way they can still exercise it. I would say it's not only one way; it's the way in which they have been exercising power all these years. What happened is that in 1977. Uh, Begin came to power. By the way, I remember just before he came to power, the same uh, sort of uh, accusations were hurled that he's going to be a dictator, that he's a fascist, that he will destroy yeah. democracy. It's the exact same thing that you hear now. Yeah, Absolutely we hear. The same. No difference. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're actually copying the playbook of uh, the post-Trump, the first Trump yes. election, and everything was in there. They hope to create this sort of mass, uh, I would say even violence, some of them, the anarchists want to create violence and to bring the government down. I would say it's composed, those are protesting composed of three basic groups. Those who do not want to lose their hold on the functioning machinery of the state, both the political, cultural, everything. It's more than the deep state in America. They really control everything, whether it's the theater, whether it's committees that decide which movies will get Mm Funded or not, and of course, uh, many other things to do with the economic economical power. Uh, that's sort of the elite that do not want to lose their control, and they're also mostly on the left. Want a leftist agenda of some of this, one sort or another. Even though even the left now is, they're not even talking about uh, peace with the Palestinians because you know after you get struck on the head so many times, they they themselves realize it that they, or they realize that this is going to go nowhere for the time being, uh, or they realize at least that the, that the population will not uh, understand it will go nowhere, and so they don't want to create uh, you know, trouble for themselves. What is the what do you what's your gauge of political opinion? If you uh, have there been polls in Israel that poll the election? Oh, we, we just had an election. We just had an election on yeah. the, in November one, and that election was very clear, very much yeah. right. And that that issue was part of the campaign it agenda. Was the, the, the the main issue was the political was the judicial problem. So you can make that, the art. BB has the people behind him. Absolutely, and but the, obviously not the press or the media, though. Am I right no, about that? Obviously, obviously not. Yeah. Uh, look, what happened is that because of the trial, things that have been coming out from the trial of the various uh, doings of the, the attorney general and of the prosecution, and of the police, and how they, they got witnesses to testify falsely. Uh, these things have been coming out every day. Every every prosecution witness so far has become a de facto witness for the defense. I mean, unheard of things that you would think that this does not belong to a normal country, a democracy. Yeah. It's, 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 it's we're in, doing, in as you know here, this is very eerie because here, after the Mueller investigation mm-hmm. folded, 
And then we learned that the FBI had altered a document, for example, Kevin Kleinsmith. And then we found out that it wasn't that the Steele dossier was was yes. was unreliable, but it was completely fa- fa- fabulous. There was nothing a fable. It was nothing. There was nothing there at all. And then we had the laptop that this, the FBI suppressed for a year right on the eve of the election and 50, 50 intelligence Yep. Operatives yep. were retired sounds, under. Sounds familiar. And, what can I yeah, tell you? <laughs> yeah, Brian, but the point it, it seems it seems, and then of course they went after Trump, and now we're learning even more about the January sixth. Not that anybody su- supported the break into yeah. the Capitol, but we're learning things that nobody had learned about. That there was videotape that was not released. There was nobody armed in the Capitol, as people had uh, alleged. Officer Sicknick did not die. I could go on and on. But what I'm getting at is, what is it uh, about the international leftist Western movement or the mentality or the ideology? Because it's so that they they feel they're almost so morally superior that any means necessary to advance this yes. agenda is justified because they're better than we are. But it's yeah, so eerie. It's almost as if our luxury and our affluence that capitalism and constitutional government create they Xerox this mentality. You see it to the, the most extreme degree in Europe, but then in the bi-coastal elite in the United States. And then you would think that Israel would be a special case because you're under an existential threat daily and you could ill afford this this bothersome luxury of of suicidal impulses that we that we contain because we're yeah, but what's happened is that because the the economy has become so strong thanks to the reforms that my brother instituted many years ago we've you know become a, a per capita gdp has just surpassed germany you know and we will become one of the richest nations in the world with time. It's just a matter of time. And so uh, as a result of that, we, of course, you know, do uh, as a, as a uh, of course, a historian of the, of the, of the war, of the, what is it called? I'm sorry. Uh, the, uh, the historian of the, of the warfare. Yes. Uh, uh, understand the importance of the, uh, of uh, machinery and, uh, and everything that to do and that costs a lot of money. Yes, the machinery of war. We've become so strong because we can afford it. It's very simple. And so, uh, except for the problem of Iran, okay, everything has been put on the back burner. We don't feel threatened anymore to our existence by the Arab countries. That's gone by the wayside. Yes, the, the Palestinians are a problem, but it's not really a military problem. It's more a terrorism problem. The only thing that remains is Iran, and that's sort of a, okay, looming danger out there. Of course, nuclear bomb, you don't want to ever get. Uh, But because the immediate threat, except for Iran, which is the ultimate threat, has sort of gone by the wayside, they allow themselves, of course, to uh, do whatever they want right now. It seems like there's some urgency to get the matter settled, because while there's not an existential threat now, as you point out, the Iran, the Iranian danger, and then the fallout from the Ukrainian war, and uh, whether or not it would be nice to see these uh, moderate Arab countries join the uh, the protocols of the Abrams. All of these would require. I mean, it would be. It would if these if these reforms pass, they would give. BB a lot more, what would be the word, operational laxity or control or to, to deal with these things, wouldn't they? Or does it not affect foreign policy? It, it, uh, no, foreign policy, I would say, is not affected by the Supreme Court so far. Who knows what they might do? But that's more or less the only thing that they don't intervene in. They intervene in everything else. Uh, I, I won't give you all these examples because yeah. you, 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 you'll think I'm exaggerating. You'll think I'm making it up. <laughs> but the uh, uh, what you mentioned, of course, is the end justifies the means. To the to the left, it's always been that way. The end justifies the means. And uh, this is what they're doing here, and this is what they're doing in America and probably in Europe. I'm not an expert in Europe. Uh, but it's, by the way, it's not only the elite that are uh, uh, behind these demonstrations with a lot of money, but also, of course, anarchists who want to topple the government. And also, and most of the people who demonstrate are just naive citizens who indeed believe what the press says, that the democracy is in danger, 
and that in two or three months will be here a dictatorship. Okay. They believe it. Well, so uh, this is ridiculous. Okay. Everybody, we're going to take a, a little break and hear from some people, and then we'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we're, we're back now with Ido Netanyahu, and we're talking uh, about a lot of domestic politics in Israel, specifically this for us Americans, this bizarre nature of Supreme Court power that seems to override executive and legislative consensual government in Israel and uh, the effect it's had uh, in trying to really destroy Benjamin Netanyahu through, I would guess you'd call them here, bogus or false judicial writs, etc., and which all failed. And now he is prime minister with a strong uh, majority. Yeah, I, I, would say, I would say that as a result of the uh, trial and what has been revealed in the trial, not through the mainstream press, we actually stopped sending the reporters because God forbid they, they start to uh, report on what's happening in the trial, but it's been filtering to the public through the internet, you know, as usual. And as a result of that, people became aware of the grave problem to do with the whole judicial system. You think, it helped, regards, you think it helped Bibi's political uh, be able to his ability to get a coalition in the Knesset, this the, the egregious yes. overreach of the, the court. Yes. The, in, in the last elections before that, well, you know, he's being accused of bribery, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, and so he lost, of course, he lost support, which is why there was a standstill for two or three years. A lot of the standstill was had to do, by the way, with the Supreme Court annulling one of the laws of the parliament, but we won't get into that. With regards to Iran, I can only tell you that... Uh, Although the other the, what are the parties that are now in opposition opposed Bibi's approach to Iran uh, when uh, Obama was president, and they criticized it very much, in truth, uh, they are now all behind uh, doing something with Iran. And that's, that's the honest truth. And they no longer are against a military option if such an option has to be I think the Iran deal is dead here, too. Uh, not that they didn't. Robert Malley, as you know, and the Biden people were trying to resurrect this insane Obama formula of empowering Iran and by extension, I suppose, Lebanon and Hezbollah and Syria and mm -hmm. Hamas is, is sort of a foil against Israel and uh -huh. the Gulf Straits. And out of that creative tension, uh, then Israel could be controlled or could be repressed as Saudi Arabia could be repressed as the Emirates as Kuwait. And that that thing blew up. And now because I, of I think, Ukraine and Russia and Iran. Yeah, I mean, yes. It. And now this unrest in Iran. And this is very strange because the same thing happened during the Obama administration, the so-called Green Revolution. He came in in 2009, immediately was confronted with this mass uprising of democratic fervor, millions and he did nothing. He and it was against, I guess, his revolutionary fervor, his own, that he felt well, almost as if he was saying, now, listen, you Iranian reformers, just stop it, because here in the United States, we feel guilty what we've done about Iran. So we're going to work with a the theocracy. And the same thing is now repeating again. We haven't heard any strong Biden administration encouragement yeah. for reform. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. the result of that is I think a lot of people. Here, there's no. I, I can't see any pathway at all uh, for the the Iran deal, which doesn't mean that uh, Iran won't. I would won't say the Iran deal. The, the major danger of the Iran deal was to uh, allow Iran to be economically strong and uh, yes. to uh, pursue its uh, uh, its uh, desired goals in the Middle East, in the Arab countries, in the whole entire region. Let me ask uh, you an, a, another but, question because but, but they won't stop. They won't stop their attempts to create a nuclear bomb. That's not going to stop them. Whether the deal goes through or not, does not go through, it'll, it'll continue. And that's the but, major problem. And who's going to stop them? Yeah, that's I don't know problem. who's going to stop them. I think, I think <laughs> being a cynic, I think that Israel will have to stop them. And then all of a sudden, I think you'll get... Uh, 
pre-operational support from the moderate Arab world. They'll, be, they'll offer you airspace, uh, intelligence, even weaponry that they, if to the degree they have any that's useful in their stocks, and then the same will be true of the United States. And then the moment you did do it, you will be condemned wildly and broadly and fervently. Yeah, uh, well, we were condemned every time when we yeah. bombed the nuclear reactor of uh, Iraq. America suspended its uh, yes. weapons uh, shipment to Israel for quite a long time. <laughs> and now, and, and then, were condemned then as well. Okay, so. And then the picture of the uh, of the damaged reactor was on Dick Cheney's wall. And so, I guess, let me ask you though: there's something that I think is kind of dangerous, and I'd like to see what your take on it. So we have this uh, Ukraine war that's becoming more and more Verdun-like stalemate. World War One type of meat grinder, maybe total dead civilian and military on both sides, 250,000. And all of the West, understandably, and Israel, I think, too, uh, objected to Putin's aggression. They want him to stop, maybe go back to the 2014 borders and then adjudicate the borderlands in Crimea by methods other than war. But we don't have to get into that. But there is something that's that's going on as we as the Europeans via the EU and NATO and us pour 200 billion dollars of sophisticated weaponry as if they can match the overwhelming population area and GDP of Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine. This thing is it's getting very dangerous, especially with the nuclear cyber routing. And here's Israel and it's watching this. It has, by the way, as our listeners know, it has a history, the Jewish people in World War II in Ukraine. It was sort of the embryo of death, um, if I should say that, under the auspices of German-Russian fighting, especially in 1941 and 42. But aside from that, you have I don't, they're not. I guess you would say, as an observer looks at it, you have protocols with Russians who, in various degrees, are in Syria vis-a-vis of when you're confronted with an act of aggression from Hezbollah or Syria or whomever works for them, then you have to retaliate to maintain deterrence. And that raises the issue, are you going to bump into Russians? And I don't want to get into to ask you anything that's classified, but... I, I don't have, know if things look... Yeah, like, but you have things that are... You have protocols, you meaning the Israelis with the Russians. And then in the wider sense, it's in your interest that there not be a new coalition of China, Russia, Iran. And and it seems to me that we're drifting into not only that, but India is buying Russian oil and has made it very clear it it does not want to punish Russia. And Turkey, Turkey is a special case. It can be very anti-Israeli or can under the table or stealthily be very helpful. But it does seem that it is gravitating away from the United States, at least, and closer to Russia. Is Israel concerned that there is a coalition building? It would be almost, I suppose, 40 or 50 percent of the world's population, given India and China and Russia and Iran and Turkey. But insidiously, it's not favorable if Israel is put into our camp. Doesn't it, does it need freedom of operating in a realistic sense, is what I'm saying, from your observation? I don't know if that was pretty well, clumsy. Our attacks in Syria are mostly to do with the, the Iranians trying to bring into Lebanon, attacks in Syria and Lebanon, trying to bring through Syria into Lebanon uh, weapons, uh, precise weapons, uh, precise uh, missiles to rain on Israeli cities. Right now, uh, yeah, Lebanon has a huge number of missiles that can cause harm, but they're not, for the most part, they're not precise missiles. The big danger is the precision missiles. And that is what we've been working against for all these years. Uh, With the Russian acquiescence, uh, we won't attack you do whatever you want. And this, of course, uh, the the Russians controlled the Syrian airspace, and as a result also, of course, the Lebanese airspace, and they have not intervened. intervened. And this was very important and still is very important for Israel. Uh, Right now, uh, it seems like uh, Iran in the guise of helping the victims of the earthquake in Syria is indeed shipping uh, 
dangerous equipment, dangerous from the point of view of Israel, uh, to Syria that uh, will go into Lebanon and Syria itself. So and Iran is, the Iran is supplying Russia with with right. re-engineered drones. Some of okay. the people here so Russia, they were Russia is now depending. Yeah, Russia is now dependent on Iran. On the other hand, Russia has an agreement with us. So has that balance, altered your relationship with Russia vis-a-vis Syria airspace? As far as I know, not yet. And I hope it will continue to be this way. But certainly Israel cannot take a decidedly anti-Russian formal policy because of what uh, because of our uh, security needs. No, you can't. It's obvious. I mean, Russia could, could have of course. Forbid. <laughs> and, and of course, we cannot uh, supply... We have not supplied uh, Ukraine with uh, weaponry of any uh, substantial means because, once again, this will go against the Russians. Yeah. Uh, they, so they all can, these things. Are you worried that they could put Iran under its nuclear umbrella? Or who knows if they got angry enough? I don't. Yeah, well, I, I, I doubt that Russia will open a nuclear war. That's, uh, I don't think that's realistic. But uh, in uh, Iran, uh, I think Russia also does not really want also Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. Iran has its own agenda regarding the Islamic world and regarding that's But I mean, what I meant was that if you got on the wrong side of Russia, they could say, we do not want you to preemptively attack the nuclear installations in Iran. And that would be a veiled warning. Yeah, they might say it. And if they do say it, I hope we ignore it. We have no choice. We already encountered Russian... uh, Pilots and troops uh, when we were fighting the, uh, the Egypt after the Six Day War, and uh, they actually manned the planes in the, in the Egypt and got uh, clobbered and stopped. Mm-hmm. They want to. They truly don't want to mess with us, even though we're a tiny country. But I don't think that this is something that they will actually give a nuclear umbrella to Iran unless they're desperate, frame, which I don't think they are. I think, look, if I, from my own two bits, I think uh, this has been a mistake on the part of the West not to pressure uh, in some form or fashion um, Ukraine to reach some sort of settlement with Russia, whether they can or not, I don't know. But uh, look, one one has to be realistic. I mean, I know. I mean, I don't think Ukraine can win this war. I think this is uh, wishful thinking almost a dreamlike thinking. And so uh, the West should realize this. You're not going to, this Russia will not stop as wrong as it is and what it's doing. One has to be realistic. You can't, you can't just live in a dream world. Well, I mean, it's become here in the United States, especially where I work, but uh, elsewhere, it's become almost a cause celeb on the left that was isolationist mm-hmm. and anti-war. And it's almost as yeah. if, in their mentalities, they've re- they they say themselves, "Well, we we failed on Russian collusion, we failed on Russian disinformation, laptop, but now we finally got but Putin to show the world he's evil, just like he was when he interfered in our elections." But and everybody you know says that Putin is not a nice guy. They have, but this zeal that they've adopted this cause. So if I walk around the neighborhood on the Stanford campus to take one example, I see signs that, you know, we're saying this, this house doesn't allow racism or uh, this house is is a sanctuary house or meaning for open borders. Now they've just gone with the, with a blink of an eye for Ukraine. They have Ukrainian flags and people I see at Stanford. Here we we don't have that for a very good reason. You started mentioning it. Uh, We have the Jewish people have a very long history with Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, Baba Yar was in Ukraine. Not only Baba Yar, hundreds of years ago, horrible massacres and also massacres afterwards uh, in the 19th century that actually were the catalyst to bring on for the start of Zionism. And the worst massacres before World War II we're right after World War One. Yes, there was a civil war in Russia and Ukraine, and each side, each side, whether it's the Reds, whether it's the Ukrainians, or whether it's the Whites, when they took over a city of Jews, they simply massacred the population. It's estimated that anywhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand Jews yeah. were massacred as a prelude, actually, to the Holocaust. Believe it or not, and you know, this I... is our uh, uh, horrible, horrible mini Holocaust, if you can call that mini Holocaust. 
We don't know the exact number. And then in World War II, when they joined the troops, many Ukrainians created an army of Ukrainians that joined the the Nazi army and were very active in liquidating the Jews of the Ukraine. So you don't see signs of great, I mean, yeah, we support Ukraine, of course, okay, but we don't have this sort of sentiment that I guess is there in America for Ukraine. It just doesn't exist here. We're going to take another break very quickly, and we'll be right back with Ido Netanyahu. And and we're back. Uh, You mentioned, Ido, there has to be some kind of settlement. What what would be wrong about uh, the ideas that are being put forth? Henry Kissinger had one or two. He's changed some of them, but it, it goes something like this, that everybody deplores what Putin did, but because he has, as you say, these advantages, and that would be 30 times the territory, 10 times the GDP, three and a half times the population, and of course, the oil weapon, that they look at these Russian majority speaking areas, and I have a suspicion that most of them would want to go to Ukraine, but we don't know. The borderlands in the Crimea, and we say we would like to return to we, the the world, to the 2014 borders, which had been altered by Russia in 2014 through a war of aggression. Mm -hmm. And then we say, we, great powers, will arm or continue to arm Ukraine and so it will be able to repel, and they won't be caught this time. Now they will be armed, but they will not be part of NATO. They will not be part of NATO, and but they will have enough wherewithal if they're attacked. And then we adjudicate these areas through, not the UN, you can't trust the UN, it's, it's an evil organization, but we have big power supervision of what we would call some kind of plebiscite, and we get and I don't know if the Russians would go for that or the Ukrainians, but that seems a lot better than just for the next two years, killing hundreds of thousands of people for which yeah. is not it's not going. I don't think that Russia has an expeditionary force to get to Kiev. And I don't think Kiev can push them out of the borderlands. Just, just that's just the fact. So it seems to me that would be the, the type of settlement that we should all be working for. Well, whatever settlement is, the Russians have to agree to it. I'm not they sure have they will to agree, agree to it. I'm not sure they'll agree to it. It sounds a reasonable settlement, but I highly doubt that the Russians will agree to it. What would they, they agree to? Do you think? Willing, I, I doubt that they'll be willing to pull out of Crimea. I remember, even uh, if they, even if they had a plebiscite in Crimea. I, look, I, I first of all don't forget that in Crimea, when they took over Crimea, I don't think a single soldier was killed. I don't think any bullet was fired. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, the Obama administration apparently didn't think that it was egregious at all because they gave it. Because it had it had been part of Russia. Yes, World War Two. The Ukraine by Khrushchev when he uh, changed the borders in some form or fashion. It was always considered part of Russia, as far as I know. Yeah. I can only tell you an anecdote that uh, when a play of mine was appearing in Russia, they, uh, this was right after the annexation of Crimea. And they all made a point in the, after in the afterplay parties that they had um, to drink only wine from Crimea as a point of you know support for the Russian takeover of Crimea. Uh, from what I could sense at that time, there's tremendous support in Russia uh, regarding uh, the takeover of Crimea, and I suspect also, although I don't know. Who knows what's going on in Russia? They don't really have a free press. I suspect there's also strong support in Russia itself. I I think that's what's bothering Americans, that to the degree that Western journalists have been able to talk to people or or look at polls and see, even though they're rigged, they can decipher some element of of, uh, national belief. It It seems to us that the Russians are not against this war. They're against the foolish way in which they've waged the war, but the ultimate strategic agenda that these areas have been traditionally part of Mother Russia. And they yeah, that's how they feel. So I don't think Russia will go for this, for a plebiscite or things like that. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. Then we're going to have to go back to the status ante quo, but, and that would be I, 2014. 
And then I guess well, we would say to the Russians, Ukraine won't be part of NATO. And basically, you didn't get anything out of this war, but you didn't lose anything. You lost, I mean, you lost terrible world opinion and you lost a lot of men and material, but you still have what you had in 2014. That's the best you're going to get. Uh, yeah, maybe. The, I think I think what they, the miscalculation on the part of the West is, okay, we'll, we'll keep this war going. We'll supply Ukraine with the weaponry, et cetera, et cetera, and Russia, and then we'll put tremendous economic pressure on Russia, and it will acquiesce because of the economic boycott yes. and pressure. I don't, that that's gonna ha- I don't think that's going to happen. Do you? It did I not think- happen and will not happen because no. Russia is not doing so well, so badly economically. Yeah. Well, well so West miscalculated. Okay, let's change roles. Uh, but this needs people who think uh, realistically. Uh, primarily, it has to be America that starts thinking realistically what it wants to achieve, what is achievable. What, what one wants is one thing, but what is achievable. And uh, I don't see that the people, uh, those in charge in America, uh, are really thinking things out to the end. That's my impression. No, no. I mean, we have a bicoastal consensus in the Senate and the major think tanks. It's very nice, but you let these Ukrainians die. I mean, who knows how many Ukrainians died? I I think we could say... I think 10 million people left Ukraine already. I know. I I think our attitude... on both sides. I think our attitude of the bicoastal elite is that we want to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. Yeah, it seems that way. Yes. Yeah, it's very scary. Uh, one last note from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. And we're back with Ido Netanyahu in our final few minutes. Uh, as you, as you, can I just say, make a comment? Yeah. You don't get me wrong. I'm yes. totally against. The Russian invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely. I just think one has to be realistic about what the... No, you've been very clear that you oppose it. And I think when I was in Israel this summer and and talked to Israelis, they were all appalled at the aggression. But like you, they wanted to know if there was an end or a solution that would save lives. Or they didn't like the meat grinder that it was already occurring in June uh, this summer. And I think everybody is starting to ask these questions. And it's kind of, you know, we're having all of these stories now coming out. We don't know who blew up the pipeline. The conservative elements in the media on Fox News have made the argument that, and I don't know if there's any evidence for it, but the Washington Post did a thorough analysis, very left-wing analysis, but they found Mm -hmm. there was no evidence that Russia did it. And basically, they said Russia didn't have their fingerprints on any of this uh, evidence that we do have. And it's not in their interest to blow up their main source of foreign exchange because they could just Germany can just shut the, the, you know, they can shut it off. And then people thought, well, it's not in the interest of Germany because they've shut most of it off. But to permanently shut it off when their people Older people are in heat rooms and apartments in Germany right now to keep warm because they don't have enough natural gas. And so what was the United States doing? And then we had to collate some very mysterious pronouncements that in uh, January before the invasion, Victoria Newland, our undersecretary of state, said one way or another, I'm quoting directly as I by memory, they will not have the Nordstrom 2 pipeline if they go to war. And then Joe Biden, a month later, but still on the eve of the invasion, said, if Vladimir Putin goes in there, there will not be a Nordstrom pipeline. Then he was asked, well, how could you ensure that? And he said, we can do it. We have the ability. Then after it was blown up in a congressional testimony with Ted Cruz, Senate, mm-hmm. uh, he's, she said, again, when she was called, she said, like you, Senator Cruz, I'm so happy that the pipeline is now a pile of scrap metal at the bottom of the sea. So I, didn't, I never realized that all these things were said. By yeah, and it, it was very. And then we had Seymour Hirsch, who we on the conservative side have, have never trusted because although he was accurate about the terrible My Lai atrocities in Vietnam and the Abu Ghraib, he so embellished those stories that he lost some credibility. But he comes out with this substack. I mean, my God. 
it's based on one source, but the problem that everybody has with it, and the media didn't cover it at all. They didn't want to talk about it, but it's so intricate and detailed. And it involves Norway and Denmark, and he has detail of the particular unit who did it. And all. And what people haven't done is the hard investigative work of saying, no, Mr. Hirsch, you're wrong because this unit was not at this place. Or I can prove that this didn't. They haven't done that. They just said, this is false. This is crazy. This is. No. But it, it, it has to be investigated because if that were to be true, I think people in the United States would think, my gosh, we attacked a nuclear power in a time of peace, at least with us, Russia, and we destroyed a multi-billion dollar asset. And then we attacked the property of a NATO ally, and we did that. And then we broke domestic law because this was a covert action that had to be disclosed to the so-called gang of eight, the senators and representatives mm -hmm. that have to approve covert military action. So yeah, I think it, the consequences are so enormous. If it were to be true, we say we can't even fathom what would happen if this were true. Therefore, it cannot be true. Therefore, we're not going to discuss it. Yeah, they won't discuss and I doubt whether you'll ever find the truth. No, I don't. I don't think we'll ever not, find the not truth. Not for the next 20 or 30 years. No. Let me just ask you one last question, because we're, we're talking about pipelines. There was this, as somebody who goes to Greece a lot and somewhat to Cyprus, there was this wonderful Greek-Cyprus-Israel-East Med pipeline project that was going to deliver, I think it was 10 billion uh, cubic yards of um, cubic feet of natural gas into, I guess, was it Trieste or Italy? What happened to that? Joe Biden said he didn't want it and it just it just vanished. It just stopped. Yeah, I think so. I think what what's happening is that instead of that, for the time being, at least, uh, we are liquefying the gas right now in Egypt. Uh -huh. started just, I think, today, first export to Europe in, in boats and tankers. Where is and the gas found in Israel? Is it southern? Off all over, all over the Mediterranean, our territorial waters. And um, it's in the territorial waters of Cyprus, Greece, and Israel in this particular. Right. And this pipeline, as it goes toward Europe, would pick up each country's natural gas. Well, it might it might come to fruition, but I think it's also a very expensive project. Right now, I think they're talking about also liquefying a lot of the gas in Cyprus, that the Israeli gas in Cyprus. And shipping it uh, to Europe, and there'll be a tremendous amount of oil that will go to or gas that'll go to uh, to Europe from the uh, finds that we have in the Mediterranean. But it won't necessarily be done through a pipeline, but through tankers. Is Israel right now? Would you? Is it fair to say it's self-sufficient in oil and natural gas? Yes. It yes. is. Yeah, we're still using uh, coal, uh, even for uh, you know for reasons of security. Yes, because. Of course, these uh, installations in the Mediterranean can be blown up, and uh, so we are still burning some coal, not too much. Uh, but uh, as of uh, a few uh, months, uh, we've become self-sufficient, and we'll be completely self-sufficient without anything else. We won't really need to use the coal except for a backup uh, in the very near future. I just a closing observation. I was wondering as. I hadn't been there. The last time I had been in Israel was 2006. And it was kind of, a, there were the suicide bombing, et cetera. But, and they were building the wall. But when I came back in 2022 in June, and I'm scheduled to go again this year for just for a few days, are Israelis aware that to the outside observer, the amount of construction, economic activity, development, wealth, mall, it, it's just stunning. I mean, it, it it doesn't look like the same country. The country was wealthy in 2006, but I don't know if our American listeners realize that Israel is, it, it's almost, I mean, we talk about the transformation in China, but it seems utterly transformed and levels of wealth, cars, uh, disposable income, hotels. It, it's, yes. it's amazing. Well, it's, it's amazing. It's the Jewish talent. Look, the country was uh, under a strict economic control by the government. I would say we had probably the most, uh, the greatest control in any uh, non-communist country in the world at one mm. time. 
And all this changed. It changed. First of all, it started to change when Begin was elected to power. It changed completely once uh, Bibi not only afterward elected to power, but then became also the minister of the finance and did a revolution in Israeli economy. And it's still the, there's a th- many things to do still. And the other bookend is when you go to the Middle East today and you talk to people from countries surrounding Israel, it's almost as miraculous that all of the old boilerplate anti-Israeli rhetoric in places in the Gulf, uh, especially, but in Egypt and other places, seems to have vanished at the popular level, not just the government realist level. It, yeah. That seems to be almost incredible. That well, they they need us because of Iran. That's actually I, I think one it, good thing about Iran is that it made the uh, like politics make strange bedfellows. Well, Iran also made strange bedfellows. It has. Yeah, it has. It's it's absolutely incredible. Well, we're we're out of time, and uh, I want to thank you, Ido, for taking so much time well, with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. And I hope our American listeners uh, can, will, will have received an inside view of what's going on in Israel, because I think it's our strongest uh, friend in the Middle East and probably strongest friend in the world. And the more we learn about it, the better it is for all of us. Thank you very much. Thanks and, for having uh, me. And it's Victor Hansen signing off.